John, I can't tell you how excited I am about the Cinephile's new sponsor, an absolutely incredible game, Marvel Strike Force. Now, anyone who's listened to the show knows that I've been reading comic books since I was five years old, and this is like a comic book fan's dream come true. You could create a mobile squad and play as your favorite Marvel characters. I mean, everyone is there. The Punisher, Vision, Black Panther, Cap, or even my favorite Marvel character of all time, Daredevil. Your goal is to power up those characters, unlock gear, and use them to compete in player versus player mode, alliance mode, and real-time arena. Yes, Stephen, as we speak, they are enjoying their six-year anniversary. Six years, wow. And you know what that means? Free stuff just for signing up via their unique link in the description. The anniversary consists of weekly events and bonuses. If you complete each event, you can receive special rewards and skins. Completing every single mission throughout the entire anniversary will result in an even more special reward. Make sure to log in each day and each week to take advantage of all the new characters that are being released specifically for this event. This will be Marvel Strike Force's most generous event to date, so don't miss out, y'all. Check out that unique promo code, and for every new user, please follow our link in the description and use the promo code MAXPOOL. Once again, thank you so much to Marvel Strike Force. We're very, very excited to have you sponsoring this episode. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. The impertinence lies, sir, with those who seek to influence a man to deny his beliefs. In my day, it was king first, God after. God made countries. God makes kings and the rules by which they govern. And those rules say that the Sabbath is his. And I, for one, intend to keep it that way. Welcome once again to The Cinephiles, where today we're continuing our exploration of the 1981 Oscar winner for Best Picture, Chariots of Fire. My name is Steve Morris. I'm a filmmaker and directing instructor in Los Angeles, California. Hello, everyone. My name is John Roca. I'm a voiceover artist, a writer, producer, and host here in Los Angeles, California, CEO of the Outlaw Nation and massive fan of this film. And where we left off, Harold <laughs> Abrams had just hired... Uh, Sam Musabini, the greatest track coach in the world, uh, to help him win the Olympic gold medal. And we go to what is like a classic training thing, which is the slideshow <laughs> of the competition. Yes. And we see the two Americans, Charles Paddock and uh, Schultz. Is it Dwight Schultz, I think? No. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, Schultz. Schultz. And uh, Jackson and Schultz, Jackson, Jackson Schultz. And, and of course, Harold knows all of their stats as well. Mm -hmm. and, and Ian says, look at them, think them. Breathe them. I want their faces leering at you every time you shut your eyes. The flying Scotsman first. That bloody well hurt. And this line from Sam Musubimi, it's another thing that stuck with me from that first time I saw it, which is... But he's no real problem. Yeah, he's a great runner. He needs to go further out. He's no 100 meters, man. He could have fooled me. And I love how Ian sums him up. He says, yes, he's fast. He's a good runner. He's all heart, digs deep. A short sprint is run on nerves, tailor-made for neurotics. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank you very much. <laughs> 
And he brings him over and he says, come here, Mr. Abrams. And they go step into the light of the slide, which people would mm -hmm. never actually do, but is great dramatically in film. And basically he says, you're overstriding. And he takes out these coins and says, overstriding, death to the sprinter. Slap in the face, each stride you take, knocks you back. And he slaps him. Three times. And that, and that. And what's funny, again, this it's really the same moment. Mm -hmm. Is Harold is angry? Yes. And then he smiles. Yeah. Is that we had the moment with Aubrey about the kosher frankfurter. We had the moment with Sybil with the pig trotters. And now we have the moment of Sam Musabini literally slapping him in the face. But yeah, this is he likes this guy. Well, this is this is who Abrams to win his affection, you have to bring something to the table. And then you have to br you have to cross over that wall that he's built around himself, right? He builds that wall of protection. Once again, this is why I connected this guy. He builds that wall of protection. And then once you earn that comment or earn that moment or earn that physical strike, he knows it's coming from a different place because he has a affection for you. And it, it, it lets him put down his load for a moment. And you can see the human being behind this pugnacious desire to succeed that is Harold Abrams, you know. What's interesting, I hadn't thought about it before, but there's a moment later with Sam Musbimi mm. after the race where they're mm. drinking and Sam, mm -hmm. I don't remember the line exactly, but he says like, you're, you, you put out like you're this hard guy, but you're really a softy. Yeah. Yep. And I, I hadn't thought about it, but that is these three moments is mm -hmm. once you get past Harold's defenses, once you're in, he is a softy. Yeah. He, he is, in fact, a loving person in his way. Which is why he has those defenses, because he can be easily hurt. Uh, and so he builds up those defenses so that people won't hurt him. And yeah. uh, he only lets you in when you earn it after spending time with him. Uh, and that's then he shows his real self. You know, and I think most people who are sensitive build those walls up on purpose to to keep the herd out. It's funny. And again, we go back to this, what gives you the strength to see the mm. race to the end. But I don't think you become a person like Harold Abrams with his drive and discipline if you're not easily hurt. Yeah, exactly. Because that's what drives him. Pain, pain drives him in a lot of levels. Yeah. The pain and the need for recognition. This is what drives him. The pain and the need to be noticed, to be seen. Yeah. Know? As opposed to Eric Little, he doesn't run out of pain. He's not easily hurt. It would be very hard to hurt Eric Little because mm -hmm. he knows who he is. Yeah. E e even, and it was funny, we're going to get to, there's, I think, two parallel scenes that we're going to get to, one with Harold and one with Eric that are very, very different yeah. uh, in the way they, but we'll get to that in a minute. And now we go into our training montage and we see uh, Ian training uh, Harold with this high stepping with a cane, which by the way, that is Ian Holmes idea. So oh. he, he had the cane from the costumers and he's talking to the, the guy who's actually doing the training is a guy named Tom McNabb. And apparently mm -hmm. once Ian got cast, he was talking to Tom McNabb all the time. How would you stand? How would you do this? What are you looking for? What are you trying to see in a runner? Blah, 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 blah. And he goes to him and they were doing some high stepping exercises and he goes, oh, well, I have this cane. Do you think a trainer would ever use his cane and hold it? And Tom's like, yeah, that would be a good thing to do. And that, that's where that came from. Um, uh, and, and the other thing that's funny is that some of this is just their actual training because they had to train. And, yeah. and, and, and the director's like, well, we might as well just shoot, get him in costumes and shoot <laughs> it. Uh, and we see Eric running. He's running on the beach. 
He's running in the hills. And then, and then we have another scene with the sister because uh, he showed up late. I said I was sorry. To me, it's not me you've insulted. How are we a bother? He has a Scottish disagreement here. Yeah, he's like, yeah. oh, are you a bother? And then yeah. there's a thing, yeah. <laughs> he says, don't fret yourself, which is an expression <laughs> I love. But I do fret myself, Eric. And, and in the midst of this, of course, a little girl comes and asks for an autograph. And just his charming, here, you could pick the pen and leans over, exposing his jacket pocket with mm-hmm. pens in it. It's just lovely. And then he tells his sister, let's go for a walk. I have something to say. I've decided I'm going back to China. The missionary service have accepted. <laughs> and she's thrilled because she thinks that he's saying, I'm not going to do this running thing. And he, then he says, but I've got a lot of running to do first. I believe that God made me for a purpose, for China. But he also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. Oh, that line has stuck with me forever. Yeah. Why? Just the idea of having that kind of a connection, an organic connection to God, that it's not like, speak to me, God. It's running. When I run, I transcend where I'm at and I connect to my Lord, and I feel that I'm doing the best with what gifts he gave me. And it's just a fascinating line in that way. You know, when I run, I feel his pleasure. I'm more connected to God, not in the church, not in the singing, not in the talking about the Bible. I am connecting to God when I am running, doing what he built me to do, or what he believes he was built to do. So to me, that there's just there just carries a weight to it, an extra weight to it that I think is very noble. You know what just occurred to me is that Eric Little and the writers and filmmakers, hmm. one of the things they understood, but these terms didn't exist yet, was flow state, which is something that athletes talk about today, which yes. is this feeling of, and, and I don't know if you've experienced this in various times. I've definitely experienced mm. it doing Aikido and even, you know, sometimes speaking or doing the podcast or things like that, mm. where suddenly it's all working. Everything is just happening. And it's like, you know, it's like um, Obi-Wan Kenobi talking about the force. You know, does it control yeah. your actions? No, but it also obeys your commands. Is there's this feeling of, I am doing it, but not doing it. I'm in total yeah. control of the situation, and yet it's all just sort of happening. Yeah. I'm not up in my conscious mind. I'm just flowing. And that's what Eric, and, and I wonder, like, of course, he feels God, which is not yeah. what I feel. But but I, I think there's something the same in there, yeah. you know, is that when you are acting rightly, when you are doing what you are supposed to do, when you have let go of everything else, yeah. that's when he feels God. To give it up would be to hold him in contempt. It's not just fun. To win is to honor him. And he asks her to go on the mission and wait and handle handle the mission for him until he's done. And she kisses him on the cheek and she walks away. Yeah, completely just... She's not happy. Almost. No, she's not happy. She's almost despondent, you yeah. know, because the way she even leaves him, is it's as if she... She's almost in shock, you know, like a death has happened almost. And then we cut to this beautiful estate in this beautiful garden. <laughs> and we've gone back to, of course, this is just Lord Lindsay's backyard. Yeah. Where he hangs out with his butlers and his servants and his, <laughs> and again, there's champagne and cigarettes. And <laughs> yeah. I think partying with Lord Lindsay was a blast. I think so too. 
I think so too. But I mean, riding bikes with his dad was not. No, not <laughs> yeah, that's this weird thing going on in the background. <laughs> this is the bike riding. It's very strange. Um, and, and Sybil's there and she's complaining because she thinks she's lost Harold. And I think Harold is just 100% obsessively training with Sam right. and has no time for her. The world's against him or so he believes. And now he's got a chance to prove himself. He can't see or hear anything beyond that, not even you. It's hard, I know, but you've just got to try and understand. Why should I? Because he's what you want, isn't he? And, and she's looking at him going, well, why aren't, aren't you, why aren't you like this? Don't you want to be, mm. you know, the fastest? And he says, well, to be a fastest, not the fastest. Yeah. Yeah. I think his is a fascinating character. Lindsay? I think he's yeah. an essential character to the movie. Oh, yeah. You have to have a little bit of likeness because everyone is so intense about what they're doing in terms of the running. Lindsay is the balance. Well, and he's also representing uh, the this thing that we're going to talk about as we go forward, which is the the amateur, the gentleman yep. athlete, not the obsessive, compulsive. This is my life, but the right. I can I can do it or I can not do it. I can win <laughs> win and drink champagne. You know, I care about it, but I don't care too much because right. to care too much would not be classy. The fastest man ever before. That's immortality. Just think what it means to a man like Harold. Oh, to me, the whole thing's fun. <laughs> but, you know, you talk about uh, two scenes that parallel each other. This parallels as well, right? The two most important women in each of their mm. lives. Eric's yeah. sister and Sybil for um, Harold. And, they're and they both feel like they're being pushed aside uh, for the Olympics. So, And this is true. A lot of... A lot of athletes' uh, wives or husbands have said this exact thing, that when they, their particular or significant other starts to focus in, they become uh, a side of the whole situation, a side of, of everything. They're just a, another thing that they have to be pushed aside because the focus is so this. So you have to understand that, you know. And Sybil is the one that's, both of them, I guess, is, are having the most difficult time understanding this life. Well, in, in, in a way, Sybil's more like Lindsay because she sings because she loves it. Right. But she's not driven. We don't get the sense that she's no. driven. She, she's like, I like doing this and it's fun. Yes. And I yes, I work hard. It's not that Lindsay doesn't work hard. She works hard. But yep. she doesn't understand what Harold is going through, what drives him. Right. Um, and then he, he tells his servant to get his spikes. The butler pours champagne, a glass on each hurdle. And he tells his butler, who's the closest thing he has to a coach. <laughs> Ready, my lord. Now, Coot, if I shed a drop, I want to know. Touch but not spill. But... In the image of the guy running hurdles with champagne on every hurdle is just amazing. And he does spill a drop. Right at the end, which is, to me, a uh, precursor to what we're, or a foreshadowing of what we're going yeah. to see in when he runs. Agreed. His race. Uh, yeah. By the way, this actor hated the hurdles. Hated <laughs> I'm sure he did. I'm sure he did. They look awful. Still, I, I've never yeah. tried to do it. <laughs> I did once when I tried, because this, this film kind of inspired me to pursue track and field a lot <laughs> in every, in middle school and in high school, and I was never great at it uh but i tried those hurdles that's no joke man I yeah mean, the speed and the timing and the precision of it all trying not to clip your toe on the that hurdle after you jump it is so so difficult yeah you know yeah really hard we're back at cambridge we're back with our older gentleman john gilgood and lindsey anderson sitting having a nice dinner with harold abraham life slips by abrahams life slips by 
With this fine old university of ours, she offers some rare consolations, wouldn't you say? Beyond measure, sir. Uh, by the way, this was Ben's uh, third day of shooting. Wow. Um, and this was a lot for him to deal with. I bet. You know. I bet two legends like this? Yeah. Of course. I can take it then that you would be acutely grieved to discover that any behavior or action on your part were causing her grief. Naturally, sir, I would. Deeply. And what we get into is a conversation in their subtle, not so subtle British way about amateurism. Mm -hmm. Is that they believe in the amateur games, in amateur athleticism. The amateur. Yeah. The amateur. <laughs> the way they say it. Yeah. Um, and they talk about, you know, that th athletics are an important part of growing people, that they give you a feeling of loyalty, comradeship, mutual responsibility. Abrahams, I'm afraid there is a growing suspicion in the bosom of this university. And I tell you this without in any way decrying your achievements, in which we all rejoice, in your enthusiasm for success, you perhaps lost sight of some of these ideals. May I ask what form this disloyalty this betrayal takes and they say it's your coach you have hired a professional coach and in this moment man is he an italian of italian extraction yes i see but not all italian i'm relieved to hear it he's half arab <laughs> the classism and the racism are just hand yeah. in hand in this scene yes as they are do we take it did you employ this mr masambini on a professional basis. And he goes, yeah, he's the best coach. He is the expert, the most modern, thoughtful, on and on and on. Yeah. And they go, yeah, but he's a professional. What else would he be? He's the best at what he does. Yeah, of course. It's just so logical to Harold, it makes no sense. Ah, oh, but there, Mr. Abrahams, I'm afraid our paths diverge. You see, this university believes that the way of the amateur is the only one to provide satisfactory results. I am an amateur. You've been trained by a professional. You've adopted a professional's approach. It, what's so interesting to me, this idea of the amateur, which is now gone from the Olympics. Yes. I mean, essentially, yes. they're all professionals. Mm -hmm. Is that what this really was, was a classist thing. Because only a wealthy person could be an athlete. Because a poor person could not devote the time to athletics necessary because they had to make money. And, and this idea of the dilettante, the, the amateur wealthy athlete is so classist and really horrible in my opinion and something that had to be destroyed. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I like it as a, like the idea of, oh yes, we're not competing for money, but it's like, right. Believing in the superiority of your class based mm -hmm. on not allowing the other classes to participate in the competition. Oh, you mean like Major League Baseball not allowing black players to play exactly. for many decades and then claiming those records should still stand. Yep. I find that to be fascinating as well. Yeah, it's yeah. the same thing. And again, it goes to the thing we said before, the anti-Semitism against Harold's dad is yeah. perfectly connected to this. Oh, he's a tradesman. Well, how the fuck else is someone supposed to make money <laughs> if they're not born a lord like Lindsay? You know, right. <laughs> like what else do you expect? For the past year, you have concentrated wholly on developing your own technique in the headlong pursuit, may I suggest, of individual glory. Not a policy very conducive to the fostering of esprit de corps. And you can feel... Oh. 
Ben Cross's anger, but his resentment, his, and you can also see him holding it together. Yeah. Which is part of what makes the scene great. He says, I am a Cambridge man first and last. I am an Englishman first and last. What I have achieved, what I intend to achieve is for my family, my university, and my country. And I bitterly resent your suggesting otherwise. Yeah. And, they, and they say, your aim is to win at all costs. At all costs, no. But I do aim to win within the rules. Perhaps, sir, you would rather I play the gentleman and lost. To playing the tradesman, yes. And I don't believe them. I think they want him to win. Yeah, right. But they want him to do it in a certain way. Yep. This, you know, and Steve, it's so funny. This is the first time we see him confronted with this anti-Semitism that he's been talking about through the whole movie. Right. This is the first moment where it really comes to bear. And he's, you know, he says to Sybil, you know, I say to myself, oh, or I'm sorry, he says to Montague, oh, you know, it's all in your head. Or he says to Sybil, you know, you, you wouldn't know because you're not Jewish. You wouldn't ask you're not Jewish. And but this is the moment. This is the moment where now everything Harold has been saying throughout the movie comes to fruition and you understand why he uh, is this way and why he uh, carries this uh, burden with him because he knows this is always there, right on the edges. Even when he succeeds, even when he accomplishes something, they still want to find a way to denigrate it. They still find a want, want to find a way to make it lesser than what their people achieved. Uh, so it's a, it's a powerful moment. Well, and, and I, the linkage between the classism and the anti-trades, the anti-bourgeois, mm. and the anti-Semitism is so interesting to me because, because the reason he's here is that his dad worked really hard to make money yes. to send him yes. to Cambridge. That and that, you know, obviously the one of the principles of anti-Semitism is that Jews are only interested in money. What he's doing is applying mm -hmm. the hard work, the discipline, and the professionalism of his father to his own yeah. drive, to his own goals. And that makes perfect sense to them. And the thing that got him into Cambridge, his father's hard work and his hard work, is the thing they want him to pretend not to do. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like they don't want him not to work hard. They don't they just want to maintain this illusion of amateurism and he doesn't allow them to do that. Thank you, sir, for your hospitality. The evening has been most illuminating. Then he gets up and you see he's going to leave. Mm -hmm. And you see him debate, am I going to say it? Yeah. And he stops and he says, "You yearn for victory just as I do." but achieved with the apparent effortlessness of gods. Yours are the archaic values of the prep school playground. You deceive no one but yourselves. I believe in the pursuit of excellence, and I'll carry the future with me. And he walks out. It's a great retort. A phenomenal retort. I'm just like, damn, Harold. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he just just destroys them, and yeah. and their response after he leaves is, "Well, there goes your Semite, mm -hmm. a different god." The way he says it, a different mountaintop. Oh, yeah. it's so denigrating. And uh, he, and then I love this moment too. He goes outside, and that's when he has the emotional reaction. Yes, you know, yes, almost breaks down because he doesn't want to give him that. I'm not going to give you. Of course. You don't deserve it. Yeah. I don't know, but my guess is you've done this exact thing. I certainly have. Yeah. Where where I, I kept it together for the thing yep. 
And then I walked outside and that's when I broke down. Oh yeah. But then this is also the moment that Aubrey comes up. He's like, hey, we're going to the Olympics. <laughs> <laughs> and we're getting onto this boat and the reporters are calling out. Mr. Little, sir, uh, what about the qualifying heats on Sunday? What did you say? On Sunday, do you think you can meet the Americans? And then he's shuffled onto the boat. So this is the Sabbath. Remember, he told that kid, mm -hmm. can't play yep. ball on the Sabbath. And now suddenly he finds out at the moment he's heading off to the Olympics that his qualifying heat is on the Sabbath. Right. And this is the race he was going to run against Harold, yep. which uh, Montague says a few seconds or a few a couple of minutes before this, when they're announcing Montague says to him, er Eric Little made the squad as, as well, rivals under the same flag. And Abram says, I can't wait, right? So mm. this race is now being set up as the sequel race. And this is the interesting thing about the movie. We don't get the sequel race yep. uh, between them. And so this, and because it, it ha the heats are have had on the Sabbath, uh, he will not race Abrams again, Abrams again. And so this moment here, and of course his friend knew and tries to explain, you know, well, didn't you read the newspapers? Like, it, like it's his fault. Like it's Eric's fault for not having known ahead of time. So a couple of things about this. The first thing is Eric Little did know ahead of time. He knew four <laughs> months before he had already decided not to run. It didn't happen at the last minute. This all happened. The, 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 this is all compressed to make it extremely dramatic. It's extremely successful in the film. It is not accurate. But he did definitely decide not to run on the Sabbath. That is 100% yes. true. The other thing about it is, to your point, is that the movie sets up that this is a competition between these two guys. In fact, yeah. just the line after uh, Harold runs the courtyard, I don't think there's a faster uh, man in the, in the country, and we cut yeah. to Eric Little. That is classic set up a competition. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Then we have Harold lose, classic set up the competition for the rematch. Mm -hmm. But this is actually a movie about individuals competing against themselves. Yeah. It is not about competing against other people. We don't worry about that. And I think that's so interesting because this is a runner's movie. Yeah. In the end, a, a runner doesn't interact with the other runners in most races. Mm -hmm. Yes, there's, you know, in a, certain kinds of races, there's positioning and, you know, and getting behind someone and things like that. But in general, you are working to beat your time to run the yeah. fastest race. That's it. Did you not read the papers this morning? I had the whole program. The heats for the Honda are on the Sunday after the opening ceremony, the semis and final, a couple of days after. It's only a heat. Does it make all that difference? Yeah. Yeah, it does. We cut to Eric out on the deck, thinking wind in his hair, and he hears his sister's voice. I'm frightened for you. I'm frightened what it all might do to you. And we hear the repetition of him talking to the kid about playing ball on the on the Sabbath. For the last three years, I've devoted myself to my running. I give up my rugby. My work has suffered. And I've deeply hurt someone I hold very dear. Which is, of course, his sister. Because I told myself, if I win, I win for God. And now I find myself sitting here, destroying it all. But I have to. To run would be against God's law. And I love this actor. I want to take a moment. It's Nigel Davenport. Uh, and he's an old school British actor. He's been in a million things. Yeah. Uh, but he's so good uh, look wise in that voice of his. It's so uh, down here. And, you know, I love uh, his performance as Lord Birkenhead because coming in this late in the movie, it's difficult to establish yourself as a character. But he does. With every scene he's in, you can tell that he's like one of the strongest uh, uh, people or energies in every scene he's in. 
And, and he is a decidedly mixed guy. Like, yes, he wants things that he wants. He's not mm -hmm. uncompassionate in this moment. Right. Right. You know, he appreciates the situation, but what he really wants is for Eric Little to run. We get off the boat and then we hear when Johnny comes marching home and the Americans are arriving, getting off <laughs> their ship, which of course is the same ship. You know, like we, yeah, this right. movie did not have enough money for two ships. <laughs> and we see newsreel of the Americans. And this is one of the interesting things is now we finally reach a time where athletics are being filmed. Mm -hmm. This is the beginning of this. You know, obviously it started, it's in the last decade that this is really happening. Um, and we get introduced to Paddock and Schultz, the two fastest men in the in the world. And Paddock is played by Dennis Christopher. And I was yep. watching him going, who is this guy? What do I know him from? Of course, he's from Breaking Away. Breaking Away. Yep. Which is another movie I watched over and over and over again as a kid and loved. I haven't seen it forever. Yeah. Um, and I don't he know did it, it as a favor to be in this movie. He did it mm -hmm. as a favor to Putnam. Uh, he asked him, would you want to come in and do this small part? Blah, blah, blah. And he's like, yeah, sure, I'll go have fun. Why not? It was for a week or something like that. Yeah, and as I think you mentioned before, Schultz is Brad Davis, who was in Midnight Express. Yeah. Which I think I saw, but I have no memory of. I saw it recently. I hadn't seen it since it came out. And I saw it recently, like seven months ago on IFC or something. It's still a brutally unsettling and graphic film. And uh, I, I, for the 80s, I mean, I just was like, Ooh, this is a tough film to watch. And so I don't know. It's, the, it it's like dr drug dealers and it goes to like Turkey or something like that. Yeah, he's and... a, yeah he gets framed for something, uh, for carrying something in Turkey. And he gets put in this prison. It's a true story, I think. And he endures so much uh, hardship in that prison, trying to prove his innocence or trying to fight out of that That's prison. That's right. And what he deals with. Yeah, yeah. Um. Uh, and then we cut to some warm-ups, and this is really what they did was they had to train all these athletes, and so they just filmed the training, get them in costume, and they come up with some old tiny sort of exercise. Um, mm -hmm. Brad Davis Schultz, he's magnetic on the screen. Oh yeah, and the way he moves is great. Then we have the the opening ceremonies, and I just think about this <laughs> opening ceremonies compared to opening ceremonies today, <laughs> and how unbelievably ridiculous they uh, are. This was shot in a stadium in Liverpool, oh, and they uh, they shot it on a bank holiday because they needed to get a bunch of extras. Um, they and what they did, what their way to get extras was, was they gave everybody raffle tickets and gave away big prizes. But of course, the giveaway was at the end of the day. So if you didn't stay, you didn't have a chance to win these big prizes. Um, I want to take just a moment to talk about the Olympics. It's it's funny. We did. We just did Field of Dreams sports movie. We're doing this right now. I think we have another sports movie we're going to do soon. And it yeah. wasn't. We didn't plan it that way, but I think, you know, in this time where the baseball season has been canceled, the Olympics have been canceled, yeah. we don't know when they're going to be real sporting events again, because mm -hmm. we're in the middle of this terrible pandemic, is that maybe you and I are kind of thinking about this. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, I certainly am, because I host that show on uh, right. on the Outlaw Nation game time that I like to, that I'm, I, I started the week that they started postponing and canceling all the sports uh, stuff and people are like, why would you start a sports show now? And it, I proved the point. Like 
just because games aren't happening doesn't mean there isn't sports news. And we filled up two hours every month, every Monday talking sports news. Wow. So there is still stuff happening. And, and to correct you a little bit, Steve, the baseball hasn't been canceled. It's been postponed for now. Same thing with the NBA. They're all postponed for now. Hmm. Uh, and they're trying to come up with ideas to bring it back. And one of the ideas, which is crazy, Steve, and shows you the desire for sports is they want to uh, start playing a, ba- a, a, a the first three months of the season out of one stadium in Arizona, baseball-wise, and put all the athletes, all the teams in separate hotels, but wow. they are only there and their family and nobody outside can have any contact with them wow. physically. And so that's how desperate they are to start the baseball season, that they floated an idea like that. So it may be con- it may be just a way, something in the air that we're doing these sports movies to kind of fill the gap where sports would be consuming yeah. the mainstream populace at this point. I, I was thinking just recently, you know, my, my keto dojo is obviously closed and we're mm-hmm. not having classes. Right. And, and I was thinking about it and I went, oh, there might not be Aikido for a long time mm-hmm. because Aikido, there's no way to do it socially distanced. You could do exactly. Kung Fu because you could do forms. You could do karate forms and you could practice mm-hmm. your punches and kicks. You cannot practice Aikido other than like the weapons forms without touching people. That's just no, you have to be in contact with people. Yeah. I was just thinking about that. And it made me really sad. <laughs> um, so anyway, a little bit about the Olympics. Uh, the, the idea came after the Franco-Prussian War. And this was Pierre de Coupefin, you know, obviously was created by the French. And he, it was really part of the international peace movement. He was mm-hmm. thinking about this horrible war that had just happened. And that maybe through athletics, there was a way to bring countries together in a way that would create comradeship and would work Mm. against uh, the idea that these countries would want to go to war. And we know that since having the Olympics, no country has ever gone to war. So it worked perfectly. Um, uh, The first one is in 1896, (laughs) not terribly well intended. So in 1900, they go, okay, let's fold it into be part of the world's fair. Didn't quite work. Maybe started to catch on a little bit in 1908. 1912 is the year that Jim Thorpe uh, won the decathlon. And of course he had his medals taken away because he had gotten paid like 10 bucks or 20 bucks to play a little bit of baseball before that. And they said, oh, you're a professional. And they took all the, they stripped him of his medals. Might've had something to do that he's a native, he was a native American as well. Maybe there was just like with Harold. Yeah. Um, I remember loving Jim Thorpe, all American. I'm I'm sure, I know it's completely not accurate in any way. (laughs) And I, I, can't, I, I, I yeah, I can't imagine watching. You know, I don't think it would never be on the cinephiles. But his story is an amazing story. Uh, Nineteen sixteen, there's no games because of World War One. Nineteen twenty, it's one and a half years after the war. It was not a success at all. The Olympics were totally out of money, and the belief was basically if nineteen twenty four doesn't work, that's it. There's not. And nineteen twenty four was a huge huge hit. And the big reason is what we were just talking about is we've just reached the era of mass media. Mm-hmm. It was the first Olympics that was broadcast on radio. It was the first Olympics that was really filmed and people watched these in newsreels. It's the first mm-hmm. Olympics where newspaper reporters were really there. The whole world was following these Olympics. Um, and a bunch of crazy stuff happened at the Olympics because I was researching <laughs> it. And first of all, there were riots when the Americans lost. Americans, yep. always the classiest of France of fans. <laughs> there was massive controversy at the boxing matches, including one dude biting another guy, mm. which was like, 
I didn't know there were other boxing biters other than Tyson. Um, <laughs> there was the Italian fencers were disqualified for some reason. I don't know. But a whole bunch of people challenged each other to duels and actually had duels. One of the Italian coaches almost took another guy's eye out and they wow. became best friends later on. Um, <laughs> the number one track star was actually Pavo Nurmi, who was known as the Flying Finn. And uh, I believe 24 is the year of Johnny Weissmuller, the swimmer mm. who becomes Tarzan. Yeah. So anyway, that's your little history of the important. This really was important. This Olympics was a really important moment. And if it had not been a success, if it hadn't been a great competition that the world was really interested in, we might not have the Olympic Games today. And certainly we wouldn't have this film. Yeah. Um, it's time for Lord Lindsay's race for the hurdles. Mm. Um and his buddies come and they kind of wish him luck. And I love there's a moment where he's smiling and being his normal smiley self. And then he turns yeah. to the race and his face goes deadly serious. Yeah, because this is reality now. This isn't running with your friends or no. fun or this is serious. And you see the nerves nervousness come over his face in a way that you hadn't seen the entire movie. And it almost is like. You're just like almost taken aback. Yeah. Wow. You know? Um, and then there's the run. It's in slow motion, of course. Mm -hmm. And at the end, he doesn't win. He comes in nope. second, I think, and yells, screams at the end. Great scream. Yeah. Uh, and then we're at a lovely party. And, and the, the Prince of Wales is arriving. And we go to our guys. And Eric Little meets Jackson Schultz, the American. And this is a big ball with dancers in the background and all the stuff. And yeah. uh, Lord, the Lord comes, who's the head of the Olympic Committee, comes to Little and says, the prince would like to meet you. And he's like, mm. no, 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 sir. It wouldn't be right. He is your future king. Are you refusing to shake his hand? Does your arrogance extend that far? He'd been kind of nice to him when he talked to him the first time. Yes. Not this yes. time. My arrogance, sir, extends just as far as my conscience demands. But they convince him to go see the prince, and we go into this room, and there, there is the Prince of Wales, and there are these two other lords, one of who's young and seems relatively friendly, and the other is yeah. an old dude <laughs> who is not friendly at all. <laughs> By the way, the young guy you just mentioned, he's in Downton Abbey. He's a significant mm. part of Downton Abbey, gotcha. so still working that guy. But yes, the old dude is the guy. He's so good. And I think that this scene is in a weird way a parallel scene to the one with Gielgud and Harold about the professionalism. Absolutely. Is now they're going to put him on the spot and make him mm -hmm. make a choice. And the whole reason for this scene is to force him to run. Lord Birkenhead has advised us as to your attitude towards your participation in the 100 meters heats. Little, or would your non-participation be more accurate? It would, sir, yes. Now, of course, this didn't happen because Little had decided not to run four months before. Everyone that was all set up. But the newspaper reports did happen. Yes. The newspaper reports about that he was fanatics, a fanatic religious guy. And then a Scotland was in mass behind him completely. It was the UK paper or the England papers that were uh, uh, bashing him for making this stance, choosing God over country. And it ends up that the idea of asking the French to change the day of the heat is a non-starter. Going cap and hand to the frogs of all people, simply out of the question. The frogs is one of those weird uh, I know, right? slurs. I've never gotten it. Yeah. yeah. And they say in a friendly way. We decided to invite you in for a little chat to see if there's any way that we can 
help resolve the situation. There's only one way to resolve the situation. That's for this man to change his mind and run. Don't state the obvious, Cadogan. We have to explore ways in which we can help this young man to reach that decision. I like that sentence because he's essentially saying, we're going to force you to reach, this is what you're going to do, but we're going to do it in a way that you you want to do it. That's our goal. <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. I'm afraid there are no ways, sir. I won't run on the Sabbath, and that's final. I intended to confirm this with Lord Birkenhead tonight, even before you called me up in front of this inquisition of yours. Man, the word inquisition is yeah, a big so word. Especially for a Christian, right? Yeah. And this, and then, and then says, and then the old guy comes back at him and says, "Don't be impertinent." And Eric says this great line: "The impertinence lies." The impertinence lies, sir, with those who seek to influence a man to deny his beliefs. Such a great line, man, because it's just like it's just saying this is he fights for his religion in this way, right? And you made a great point, Steve. Actually, I've never thought how these two scenes were connected. And I've seen this movie a million times. I've never thought how these two scenes were connected with Harold and and uh, uh, Gilgood and, and and Lindsay and this scene. I'd never connected them. It's so interesting. Well, uh, and here they are both fighting for different aspects of their racing and then their religion as well. Well, and they're both setting up this standard of this institution in one case it's cambridge and in the other case it's country of like right. these are things you're supposed to value and you are betraying them by making this choice that you're making in my day it was king first god after yes and the war to end wars bitterly proved your point so there's like oh that's an interesting thing and then man eric little and this is the thing about it is that it's not that he doesn't have some intensity and emotion in this scene he does but he doesn't have the defensiveness or anger that Harold has. He says, God made countries. God makes kings and the rules by which they govern. And those rules say that the Sabbath is his. And I, for one, intend to keep it that way. And by the way, the prince really did try to, Prince of Wales really did try to convince mm -hmm. Eric Little to run. So, God knows I love my country, but I can't make that sacrifice. And we have reached an impasse. Yep. And the person who's going to solve this impasse is our good friend, Lord Lindsay, who knocks on the door and enters with the suave confidence of an <laughs> aristocrat, of a lord, and says, I do apologize for barging in like this. Fact is, I am fully aware of Eric's dilemma. And I wondered if I could be so bold as to suggest a possible solution. Another day, another race. What the devil is that supposed to mean? 400 meters. It's on Thursday. I've already got my medal. So why don't you let Eric take my place in the quarter? And Eric, to his credit, in that moment, is so... Over and once again, you say it's not historically accurate, obviously, but we're dealing with the movie. He's so overwhelmed by this. He starts to stand up. And Lindsay does this incredible thing where he says no. He has him sit down because he's doing it in honor and respect to Eric. Um, and I wonder if Harold's thing kind of opened Lindsay's eyes to this because he has no contact with with little he has no conversation with little he's never been friends with little we don't see anything in the movie where they're connected um but maybe harold's like dedication to uh his pursuit and his talking about the religious persecution or you know being persecuted as a jewish person in the world maybe that has affected Lindsay a little bit for him to walk in and make this stance because nothing out of the nothing out of the movie prompts you to believe Lindsay would make this stance, other than he's a you know genuinely decent fellow. But him coming in and then he stops Eric from standing and puts and, and makes him sit back down again and says, 
really simply just to see you run. And there is this That's great. kind of reverence, right? And respect for the talent of Eric Little. And maybe him losing, getting second place also motivates him to make this moment. Because the last thing he'd want to do is not find some way to help Eric have his Olympic moment in this situation. So I, think, I don't know. It's, I, yeah. I think those are all great points. And, and uh, he's such a great character because yeah. he's in a weird way so consistent because the first experience we have with him is him running the courtyard run to support Harold, not because yes. he thinks he can win. He goes, I think I can push you on a little bit. I can help. Right. And then in the scene with Sybil, who he is uh, a attracted to, he says this mm -hmm. thing about, I can be a fastest, but I can't be the fastest. And imagine how important that is to Harold. This is where I think you're totally right. I think he has learned a thing about Harold. And then having if Harold loses, that is gonna make drive him even further to win the next time. Lindsay loses and gives up his spot. Yeah. You know, and 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 the line just to see you run. I think while we might he is the champagne drinking cigarette in his mouth, wearing the robe, sort of, he seems like this light person. He actually yeah. has like a deep sensitivity and a real sense of honor and what's yeah. right. And that's what yeah. leads him to do this. Yeah. Um, there's a little moment after Eric agrees and leaves between the two lords. <laughs> I thought the lad had his beaten. He did have his beaten, Effie. And thank God he did. I don't quite follow you. Well, the lad, as you call him, is a, a true man of principle and a true athlete. His speed is a mere extension of his life, its force. We sought to sever his running from himself. For his country's sake, yes. No sake is worth that, Effie. Least of all, a guilty national pride. I, again, it, it doesn't spend a lot of time on this theme. Right. But the post-World War I England and the national pride is really important in this film. Also, what's going on right now in England in 1980, man? Is there, I mean, are, are, how, how far away are the Falklands? Like, just started. There I, th this... I believe the Falkland uh, issues just started. And um, I think Margaret Thatcher is prime minister at this time. Yeah. So maybe there's this kind of like, because it, it's almost like an anti-war kind of thing rolling through this thing. And uh, it's kind of really subtle, one of the lower chords in the film, you know? So one of the things I was thinking about with this film that is really interesting is it, it is it once it is very patriotic, very pro-British, yeah. very pro-British national identity, but at the same time, it is really anti-establishment. Mm -hmm. You know, so it's tearing down certain structures within the culture while simultaneously being a patriotic British film. Yeah, it's so it's showing a progressive way to be pro-British, yeah. accepting of, you know, immigrants, accepting of Jewish. Um, and understanding uh, and accepting of religion, uh, that kind of thing, all of it uh, showing you different new ways that you can show pride for England that isn't part of the old establishment. Yeah, totally. So we are at this room and Harold is bringing Sam into this room with a massage table and oils and things. And he says, kind of, I hope I've gotten you everything you need. And they, and they say, you know, oh, it's so out the window. We can see the Olympic Stadium. It's as good as being in there, isn't it? Better. Because then that's our only hint that he is not allowed in the stadium. He's a professional. Because he's a professional. And then there are people going into church and Eric is preaching. And what he's preaching about relates very much to the scene he just had with the prince. Behold, the nations are as a drop in the bucket. 
All nations before him are as nothing. They are counted to him less than nothing. Vanity. And while this is happening, we're intercutting with the races. And we see yeah. Harold in that opening heat, the one that, that Eric was supposed to be in. He bringeth the princes to nothing. He maketh the judges of the earth as a vanity. And we see Harold loses. Yeah. And then we immediately cut to Sam scolding him. He calls him juvenile. Juvenile! I know Sam. He giveth power to the faint, and to them that have no strength, he increaseth might. And those who have no strength increases might is the moment that Aubrey falls in the steeplechase. But they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. Then we see Aubrey get up. They shall run and not be weary. And they shall walk and not faint. And we see Aubrey lose. Yeah. And his... Lose badly. Exhausted, weeping, crying mm. at the end of that. It's just... I mean, this guy's barely in... He doesn't say a lot in the whole movie. Yeah. But yeah. he has moments that are really great. It's heartbreaking. Yeah. Um, and they and they try to comfort him and he turns away. You know, yeah. both, both directions. I love yeah. that. Um, by the way, it was extremely hot during the Olympics, and like out of, uh, I think it was the steeplechase, 40 guys, or no, it was the cross country, 40 guys started the race, only 15 finished. It was so Holy hot. crap. Yeah. Wow. The sermon intercut with these races is just really, really brilliant. Yeah. And, it, and it, it kept, it made me really think about the suffering of, of athletic pursuits. Yeah. You know, I, it's so mm -hmm. funny. So I, I, I said a little while ago that I'm doing, starting doing little karate classes with my son and we we're doing some stretches and some horse stances and, and he's kind of going, well, this hurts. And I'm like, yeah, that's, it hurts. That's getting mm -hmm. anything you want. Building any skill is going to hurt. And he goes, well, why would I ever want to do anything that hurts? I'm like, well, this is, <laughs> this is well, what know, it is. Lord Lindsay. I don't know, Lord Lindsay. Exactly. You've got to step up a little bit. <laughs> um, and the thing I thought about is part of the reason that, that sports movies work so well is that sports are metaphors for life. Yep. Because all of us are going to pursue things and all of us are going to have defeats yep. and all of us are going to struggle and all of us are going to go through pain. And that, that it, it, it's so directly compelling and so relatable. Yeah, agreed. And then we cut to this fascinating scene with Aubrey, who's just lost his race and we're just looking at his face and we are hearing Harold speak in this unbelievably honest way while Sam is giving him a rub down. Mm -hmm. And it's just kind of amazing. Do you remember when we first bumped into each other, old man? We shared a taxi, remember? You made me feel an age-old, burdened, sour, even superior. <laughs> that was the miscalculation of my life. Once again, you talk about mirrored scenes. It makes me think about the scene he had with Montague earlier in the film. He's like, it's an ache, you know, the, the, the look or whatever. Totally. This this scene is very similar because Montague is just, Aubrey's just sitting there like just, just in awe that Harold is revealing. And this is a broken Harold here tell, talking to him and telling him, you know, you're my, you're my most complete man. This, you. And it's like Aubrey has been in awe of Harold the whole time. So... He has always seen Harold as the thing to aspire to. And for Harold to say to him, you are my most complete man, Aubrey. You're brave, compassionate, kind, a content man. That's your secret. Contentment. 
I'm 24 and I've never known it. You know, it's just fascinating because people who are driven by this stuff, they take everything so seriously and everything, every loss is the most devastating thing. Every victory is just one step towards the next victory and starting this process all over again. There's never a time to savor and enjoy and cherish what you've accomplished because once you accomplish one thing, you're already thinking about the next thing you want to accomplish. And it's a constant cycle for the rest of your life, people who are driven like this. And that's why they see people who are not as like, who don't take this stuff so seriously, who don't have to live their lives with this, this drive as, you know, complete, as happy, because they are never happy. I'm forever in pursuit and I don't even know what it is I'm chasing. And then he turns yeah. his head away. And it's very obvious that he's deeply moved at this moment and can't look Aubrey in the eye. Aubrey, old chap, I'm scared. Sam and I, we labored Rowed and bullied for this. And for what? I was beaten out of sight in the 200. Then that paddock tricked me in the semi. And now, in one hour's time, I'll be out there again. I'll raise my eyes and look down that corridor, four feet wide with ten lonely seconds to justify my whole existence. Wow. Remember the opening of Harold. Oh, I don't know. I've never lost. Yeah. And then you see... Harold here, that he's almost afraid to win now. Man, it's so, so fantastic. People who put this film down, I don't understand how you cannot connect to this character. He's so driven to do this thing. And he changes so much throughout the movie. And the, the events of the movie uh, knock him down and humble him uh, because he needs to be humbled. And so by the end there, the fact that he has he admits he's never known contentment. Um, and, and so absent of Sam being in the room. Like, it doesn't matter to him. He's going to give this to Aubrey and says, you know, I'm almost afraid to win. Um, and that's the thing, because once you win, you believe again that it's possible to win. And so the fall can happen again if you lose. So it's just like, it's so, such an interesting moment. I, I, two, two things about this. One is, hmm. I think the guy who said, I don't know, I've never lost, that was a facade of confidence mm. that he was putting up. You know what I mean? Sure. I think he had this fear in him. Yeah, He just couldn't trust anyone to reveal it. And I think yeah. the fact that Sam is just there, almost non-existent in the scene, what yeah. that says to me is Sam knows all this. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like he is, he has a relationship with Sam unlike a relationship he has with anybody else. They are on the same page, 100%, you know? They just, they get each other. Yeah. Um, the other thing is that the guy who plays Aubrey, whose name I don't have in front of me, his reaction and his performance in the scene is great. And that yeah. is really hard to do. He's got no lines, yeah. just gotta sit and listen, and he's great. It's the locker room. It's very quiet. It's almost holy. That's how I felt yeah. watching yeah. it. And Harold finds a letter in his bag. And inside the letter there is a necklace with a charm. And we hear yeah. Ian Holmes' voice say, Dear Mr. Abrams. He calls him Mr. Abrams. <laughs> this is this person who I said was totally on the same page with him, who's like brothers with him. He says, I believe and hope you will win the 100 meters. Go out determined to do your best. And don't forget, drop down at the first stride. I love that even in this, he's still giving him advice. And he tells him which shoes to wear. And then there's the P.S. P.S. Please accept the charm. My old father swore by it. 
that PS is, it's such a formal letter. Yeah. And he's still giving him technical advice. And yet there's such warmth in it. Yeah. Because of that charm. Yep. We enter the stadium. It's all in slow motion. We see the prince. We see Eric is watching the race. And his friend says, Regrets, Eric. You're not down there with them. Yeah. No doubts, then. What's the difference between doubts and regrets? Well, I regret. That's a good question. Uh, doubt would be that you question your decision, right? Uh, that you'd be. Uh, but regrets would be something you'd carry afterwards, right? So that's the way I look at both of those things. A doubt is, oh, did I make the right decision? And that can haunt you for a while. Regrets can haunt you. Uh, don't haunt you in the same way because at least you tried or you made. And you made a decision based on your principles. I think it's such a great distinction because there are things in my life where mm. something went wrong and I have regrets. Yeah. And a lot of them I blame myself because I made mm. the wrong decision. Right. And, and there's some where I know I did what was right and that it didn't go well. It didn't work out the way I wanted it to. But, right. and, and this is, I think, so important is like you can regret what happened, but right. still believe you did the right thing. And that's what he's done. And then there's more slow motion in the getting ready and warming up. The sound becomes non-objective. It becomes subjective. So we're not hearing the crowds anymore. The music is coming in. And we see, and again, this is the thing I so remember, is them having trowels and digging the yeah. hole because they don't have blocks at this time in order to give them the best possible advantage. And... I love that as they kneel down and get into the starting position, that the charm that Sam Musabimi swings out and then he has to put it back under his shirt. And here's the thought I had is I wonder if part of why Sam gave it to him was he thought because it will take him out of his head just a little bit. Yeah. This strange thing that feels different is going to make him not obsess in the same way about right. these 10 seconds. Yeah. Um, and then he looks down the line and, and we see it almost looks like a tunnel. And just before he, <laughs> he'd heard him talk about these four feet and and hundred meters. And what they did, the cinematographer did, is he painted the other lanes black <laughs> to create that illusion of the tunnel. That's brilliant. Which I think is great. And then there's this huge, long, slow motion build. And then when they run the race, it's in regular speed. And it lasts 10 seconds and Harold wins. And there's cheers. And by the way, he you know pushes through the tape. Some people say that Harold uh, invented that. Oh. That that, oh. or Sam Musubini, that he's that particular body position of yeah. throwing your chest forward at the last hmm. second, that that came from this. I don't know if that's true, but some people said that. And then what's so weird mm -hmm. is we run the race again. Now we see it yeah. in slow motion. And we go back. It's such a bizarre way of editing this. And we go back and see all the details. And, and one thing about slow motion, again, this is a filmmaking thing, is that particularly at this time, if you want to shoot something in slow motion, you have to decide in advance. And you have to decide exactly how slow you want it to be. So if you want to shoot something that's half a speed, then you shoot it at twice the frame rate. So we're normally 24 frames a second. So you shoot at 48 frames a second. Yeah. If you want it in a third of the speed, you shoot it at three times and four times. So you and you have to make all these decisions in advance. One of these is at 200 frames a second, super slow. Yeah. Um, one other interesting thing about this is the editor 
who's editing this film, who won the Oscar, by the way, this is his first feature. Oh, wow. He had never cut a feature film before. And what he did, which I think is really interesting, wow. even though they shot out of sequence and they shot some of the Olympic stuff in the middle of the shoot, he chose, to, he said, I don't want to shoot to edit any of the Olympic footage until I've edited the whole rest of the movie because I want to really know these characters before I edit them in the climax of the film. I think that's really interesting. And I also think that only a first time editor would edit this sequence this way, showing it in real time <laughs> first, then going back and showing it in slow-mo and repeating and repeating. Yeah. I think it's really fascinating. But it also feels like it's shot like a sports situation, right? Where you watch it and then we, let's go to the instant replay. Mm -hmm. Let's take a look from this angle, blah, blah, blah. So it almost is totally. shot. And I wonder, because there was only so much replay back then in the eight. I wonder if this kind of like sparked ideas to do different angles of replays mm. and things of that nature going forward, you know? Well, I, I'm sure you remember this too. I remember when those early NFL films really started in the 80s. Oh, and yeah. There was so much use of great slow motion in those mm -hmm. movies um, and, and great music, too. Yeah. Um, by, by, by the way, I had to look it up. So Harold's uh, world record was the 100 meters in 10.6 seconds. That was mm -hmm. his world record. And <laughs> Usain Bolt, the current record holder, is 9.58. So just yeah. over a second faster than Harold Abrams. Wow. Yeah. Mind-blowing. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then... We're back in the room with Sam Musabini, mm -hmm. and we hear God Save the King. Mm -hmm. And he's sh the shot is of his back. We've brought up this term of backting, back acting before. This might be the greatest example I've ever seen. I can <laughs> see so moved, and I can feel it just coming off yeah. his back. And then he sits down, deeply moved. Harold. And he looks at his hat, and he punches through that straw hat. <laughs> um, this is, by the way, the director's favorite moment of the film. Mm. And then he sees that he broke his hat and he kind of laughs at himself. <laughs> and he grabs his handkerchief and punches his hand. And then he says, My son. My son. Yeah. This is a great moment. Because he essentially became a father figure to Harold in the movie. So it makes sense, you know, on so many levels. From but he hasn't that said way. that to him. Right. Um, uh, I, first of all, obviously I'm weeping at this moment. I mean, it's so, mm. so profound. Apparently mm. after seeing this movie, Sir Lawrence Olivier was so blown away by Ian Holmes' performance that he called him up and he basically said, how did you do that? <laughs> Which I find so fascinating. Wow. Well, and, and thinking about it, you know, we just saw him in Spartacus. Yeah. One of the great actors in history. I don't think he could play this part. I don't know. I don't know. Because at the end of his life, maybe. Maybe. Because Olivier had gone through that depression mm. in the 60s and, or late 60s. Uh, yeah. Where he was suicidal and because no one wanted to cast him anymore. And he th it, was like, uh, it was like Sinatra when he almost killed himself after killing but he couldn't sing. For that mm. year, few months, he couldn't see. Olivier went through a period of deep depression where he couldn't act anymore. Nobody wanted to cast him in stuff. He could not get back into acting anymore. Like he, it was almost like what Harold said, right? He was almost afraid to succeed because of the losses and the failures he'd endured. So I would have loved to have seen Olivier's version, especially because if you watch the jazz singer, the Neil Diamond movie, not a good movie, but he is extraordinary in that movie as uh, Neil Diamond's dad, as the rabbi. 
I have uh, no he, memory that that's. I, I don't. I haven't seen that movie in. I think I only saw it once in a long, long time ago. Yeah, I didn't remember yeah. that's Olivier. That's funny. Yeah, he plays he plays Neil Diamond's dad in that movie, and I he's heartbreaking in that movie. And I think his life experience would have been something to see him as uh, as Ian Holmes' character. That being said, though, I like that Ian Holm is perfect. Ian Holm is perfect because he's diminutive. Yeah, he's got that kind of like you know like Rocky, like Mickey to Rocky. Totally, you know, he's got totally. that kind of thing. So yeah. the vibe works, you know. And so I, it, it, I think he could have done it. I just don't think it would have been as powerful. Yeah. Then there's this really interesting moment where we're in the locker room and Aubrey's going to go talk to him, and Lindsay says, "Don't." He, yeah. he says, "He says one of these days you're going to win yourself. It's quite hard to swallow." <laughs> <laughs> funny line and then harold gets up and walks out without a word yeah i want to say something i don't want you to think it's weird uh but i'm gonna say this <laughs> okay <laughs> uh i had the same reaction and i know i know i'm not an athlete i wasn't it's not an olympic medal but i spent a year trying to win that singles bell for the shimoda i know it's a shimoda it's a movie trivia i know but i spent a year chasing dan and when i beat him for the belt which nobody thought i was going to do i literally sat down in a chair uh, for two hours afterwards and people tried to come up and congratulate me and I was just in a haze because I'd spent a whole year trying to build to that moment to beat people so I could get to that moment and it, it, he, the, the, it's, so it's a microcosm of what they're talking about it is true once you actually accomplish something that you've set your whole you know set your goal to do it's almost weird when it happens it's almost like wow I don't know how to what do I do now you know, it's so weird. And so I love that they have this realistic moment because I'm sure athletes have had that moment where they're like, I don't know how to talk to anybody now that I've achieved this thing, you know? All right. You reminded me of a story that I'm going to I'm gonna tell. Mm -hmm. And I would say there's a 96% chance I'm not going to get through this without crying. But I'm going I'm to do my best. Mm. So uh, after the assistance, which we talked about, you know, I said in this podcast about wanting to leave it all in the court. Yeah. And we went to the Vale Film Festival, which is a which is a good, a really solid. It's what you call a mini major, so it's not like Sundance yeah. or Tribeca, but it's like Palm Springs or Mill Valley or one of the one of the you know important film festivals. Right. And the it was assistance did great at that film festival, and it was a very popular, and the crowds were big, and people were talking about it. And then we go to the award ceremony, and the assistance won the audience award, which was for best mm. picture. So it was, it, it, which is the one you really want to win, in my opinion. Yeah. And I went outside after, and I the first thing I did was to call my parents. And I called them to tell them, it's going to be really hard to get through this. <laughs> um, and uh, it was when my dad was dying of ALS. Mm. And it's rough. Mm. His voice was really weak. Yeah. Because he was sick. Telling him we won. Mm. <sighs> Take a moment, man. Take a moment. Don't sweat it. I mean, you're going to edit this anyway, so don't, don't, <laughs> take a moment, man. Don't sweat it. Hearing his voice congratulate me, I can't tell you how it felt. Yeah. Yep. Because of all yeah. the work. It's a validation, you know, and... I remember the first time my dad finally saw me act when he hugged me after he'd come driven down to Florida State with my mom to see me. And he hugged me and he said, I get it now. I understand. 
I broke down in his arms because I had waited for my father's approval for 10 years as I pursued this. So, yeah, I mean, and, and the same thing here, right? Harold, I mean, uh, uh, Mussabini's reaction is like, you know, like a proud father. Well, um, and, 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 and after the word goes out of what happened to Sybil and to the to the Keel goods and yeah, um, yeah. Is, is that our next scene is there's a, a close up shot of Harold and then we're with Sam and Harold in like a bar and yes. Sam is talking. It's you know what? It's just what we've been talking about because Sam is his father. Yeah. And he says, you know, who you won for out there today. Hmm. Us. You and old Sam Musabini. I've waited 30 bloody years for this. And what I, one of the things I love about the scene is like you and me with our dads, Harold mm -hmm. doesn't talk. Yeah. And and he and, and Sam grabs him by the jacket and says, it means the world to me, this. And if all the world can do is they want to go home to bed and then go to hell. And then Harold, who's drunk, <laughs> stands up and holds his glass out on a toast and says, To Sam Masabini, the greatest trainer in the world. It's the first line he speaks mm -hmm. from since the victory. It's the first line he speaks. We see him speak. Because, and again, I'm not comparing myself to Murray. this world runner. I know you're not comparing yourself to right. the Schmodown, but <laughs> I know, I understand. I understand yeah. these feelings. That's what makes movies great, the universality yeah. of them all. We're back at the Olympics. And we see Eric, he's getting ready for the 400. And he shakes hands with every runner and says, good luck. Don't expect I'll see you till after the race. And everyone else is like, what, what is this? <laughs> Who is this guy? And, and one of the American runners goes to his coach and says, you know, what's the deal with this guy? And the coach is like, this guy's no problem. He's a flyer. After 300 meters, rigor mortis sets in. You'll pull him in on a rope. And then here comes Schultz. Watch out for a little. Coach says no problem. He's got something to prove, something personal. Something guys like Coach will never understand in a million years. I think Schultz stands out as such a character with so little in this film. Yeah, and we didn't mention Steve. They have an interaction at that uh, party. Before yeah. he goes and talks to the prime minister, right. Jackson goes up to him and says how much he respects the stance he made and that... You know the, that he understands the kinship with God and things that. So they lay this little quick seed that now comes to play in the next seconds when Schultz walks over to Eric Little and hands him this message that has a script passage in it. Well, and I want to say know? one thing before we get to that. Yeah, for this great sure. moment is that I think the he's got something guys like Coach will never understand is a perfect plant and payoff from Ian Holmes saying he's wasted on the hundred meters. Yeah, is that he needs to go longer. So yep. we're already going, yes, we know that this guy has something in him. And then, yes, just yeah. as you says, he hands him a note, and the note says, it says in the old book, he who honors me, I will honor. Good luck. Mm -hmm. And signs his name. Which, of course, is what Little said, right? When I run, I feel his pleasure. Yeah. Uh, and my, what they say in the Inquisition, right? We sought to sever this man's running from his person, uh, you know, and, and they're connected. And so everything is... A connection. The, the, it's an organic extension of himself, the running. And this, this race is so perfectly constructed. We hear that line. So where does the power come from to see the race to its end from within? 
and he's in slow motion and we just hear the footsteps we don't have music yet and the sister mm -hmm. is there watching and again we hear another line jenny i believe god made me for a purpose but he also made me fast and when i run i feel his pleasure The music builds and his head starts to go back and the <laughs> sister starts to laugh and Harold watches in close-up. This is a purely cinematic moment. It's built out of craftsmanship, out of attention to detail. And then he leans back and finishes the race and wins. And it is so moving. And the, the response, of course, goes around the, the stadium. The prince nods. He waves to his friend who points to his sister. And they make mm -hmm. eye contact and there's just this great reaction. And you can see that despite all her resistance and all her belief, seeing him run in this moment, yeah. she understands. And they're carrying around on their shoulders. They didn't carry Harold or anybody else. They're yeah. carrying him on their shoulders. Well, and I think because the story and, and it's funny, I wrote this down. I wrote it in all caps. Faith is more dramatic than discipline. That's why it ends with little. Yeah, his story is the more moving. I mean, not as we just noticed from just a moment ago. It's not the most moving for yeah. me personally, but in terms of dramatic filmmaking, this yes. is the story to yes. end with. Yep, agreed. And now it's the arrival home, and there's big patriotic fervor, and all of our heroes are carried on shoulders and brought to this car. And as you look at it, you go, "Wait, where's Harold?" <laughs> and then they all go away and it's quiet and there's Sybil, our actress, and she's looking around and the gates are closing and people are cleaning up. She's like, where is he? And then he comes out all alone. Mm. I love that. I think that's a great, great choice. It's typical of him too. Yeah. He doesn't want all that. He didn't do that for all that. Yeah. And right. then we hear a choir rising and the choir is familiar because it, it is in fact the choir we heard at the beginning of the film. And we go back to the church and I think it takes a moment to look at the boys' choir and realize we're in the present again. Because I think you've yeah. forgotten. I think you haven't thought about this, how this all started. Well, Andy, he did it. Hmm? What's that, old boy? He ran them off their feet. Nicola, Nicholas Farrell and Nigel Havers, those are the two actors who uh, play Lindsay and Montague. They're, they're and great. They're fantastic. They're great. And they're really good old men, too, man. It's very believable. <laughs> yeah, they're good. And we get a little on-screen uh, text. It says, Harold married Sybil, became an elder statesman of British athletics, and died in 1978. A couple of things. Uh, one is he actually hadn't met Sybil when this, for the Olympics. He met her years later. Oh, really? Yeah, this so, was all added? Yeah, so that's not in there. But he is an amazing guy. So... He was yeah. a huge celebrity. His races were, you know, really, really important. He ended up breaking his leg and couldn't run anymore. And he described that as a relief. <laughs> he became the head of the BBC. Mm. He wanted to do commentary on the 36 Olympics in Berlin, but the BBC wouldn't let him go because it's Berlin in 1936 and, they, and he's right. Jewish. Of and so he basically quit the BBC and got a job as an assistant manager for the British Olympic team in order to get to Berlin and then got himself in front of a microphone and he was broadcasting from Berlin and he was feet away from Adolf Hitler. And he says if he had a gun, he would have shot him. Wow. He was the timekeeper wow. when Roger Bannister broke the four minute mile. 
He's the Forrest Gump of England. For I know, States. right? He was in all these. <laughs> um, Eric Little did go back to China. And in yeah. World War II, he was rounded up by the Japanese. He had a brain tumor. And he died in captivity before the end of the war. Yeah. yeah. One other very sad note that I found out. Ian Charlson, the actor who played mm -hmm. Eric Little, he died in 1990 yeah. at the age of 41 from AIDS. Mm -hmm. Very sad. Yeah, and I think Brad Davis passed away from AIDS as well. Oh, really? Uh, if I if I think if I'm correct on this, yeah. So, uh, double shot, double sad. Yeah. To these two guys who stand out so powerfully in the movie, obviously because you know uh, Ian Charlson's the lead, but Brad Davis and the limited He's great. screen role yeah. still has an effect on you. Uh, it's sad to to know of their passing both from such terrible disease. Yeah. And then the movie does this really really strange thing, which it goes back to them running on the beach. And yes. it's a weird choice, and yet it really, really works. Because seeing it the second time as the camera goes by each of them and you get their credits, you know them now. And it's, your feelings about this scene are mm -hmm. totally different. Yeah, I think it's genius too because, I think it's genius too because um, it, Allows us not to end on a down note. I bet it was Putnam who said, no, we can't send him out of the theater sad that these two dudes have de are dead. We got to give them something to inspire them back up again. And maybe this was added uh, or it, later on to just kind of as an as a, as a end button for the movie. Yeah, it's really, it's really interesting. They couldn't sell this film. Nobody mm. wanted to buy this film. The, the showing it can did not go well. The French were not a fan of it because they didn't like how they were portrayed in the <laughs> film. They tried to sell it to everybody. In the end, they took it to ABC Sports and tried to sell it as a TV sports movie. And ABC said no. <laughs> Isn't that crazy? Wow. And finally, the lad that company. Yeah, it's crazy. And finally, the lad company and Warner Brothers. They finally, people there said, no, no, we do love this film. And they treated it with real respect. And it became obviously a huge hit. It was nominated for seven uh, Academy Awards. It won for Best Picture. Um, and it also won Screenplay, Costumes, and Score. It was nominated for Director. Mm -hmm. So he, another director won. Um, and Supporting Actor for Ian Holm and for The Editor. Um, uh, the movies, by the way, it was up against. We already said Raiders of the Lost Ark, Reds, who stole their costume, Atlantic City with <laughs> Burt Lancaster, and On Golden Pond, which got a lot of the acting mm -hmm. nominations. I'll give my final thoughts first. I'm really glad we revisited this movie. I found it mm. really, really moving. A, you know, it just made me cry a bunch. And it really made me think a lot about, it's the central question to me of the film, what gives you the strength to see the race to the end? And I think what we see is two people that get their strength from very, very different places. And yet both of them see the race to the end. And, I, and it made me think a mm -hmm. lot about my life and a lot about, you know, approaches mm -hmm. to adversity and really the, the, you know, the toughness and discipline that life requires and what it asks of you to move forward. And I, that was really profound to me. And particularly as we're dealing with a time where there's a lot of... Mm -hmm real struggles that people are having in a lot of different ways right now that seeing these two men and how they overcame and how they triumphed was deeply moving to me this time it's really difficult to do final thoughts for a film like this a film that has decorated your life since you were 11 years old and is a film you come back to all the time for either the lessons or the feeling of comfort or nostalgia or motivation 
Uh, I remember I went to go see it at the Arrow Theater two years ago when they because the Arrow shows those uh, shows uh, the, old movies and things of that nature. The place was packed. The fact that this movie still moves people, still has a strong contingent of people who want to go and see it and patronize it uh, in a theater again speaks volumes about its effect on you when it affects you. For the people that it does affect, I think it carries a very special place in their heart because both of these men are lovable for different reasons. One for purity of spirit, another for purity of drive and ambition from a place of wanting to be seen, wanting to belong. Right, the other one from a place of wanting to honor his God. So there are things that you can connect to here. The idea of the old telling the new what to do, uh, breaking through these old uh, uh, ways of doing things, so that you can drag the future with you. Uh, and those, all the lessons that are th- uh, that are in here too, as well, Steve. What you talk about to to the drive from within, but I think even more so, it is. The the uh, the um, the drive to um, do something in this world to leave a mark or leave a legacy, however it may be. Is it your chosen profession? Is it your family? Is it yourself? Whatever it may be, there is something to get from this movie uh, that you can take into your life uh, and use. Not just the speech he delivers at the race, but also the uh, the, the sermon he delivers when we're watching the montage of everybody's Olympic races near the end of the movie. There's a special power in that as well. Uh, but overall, I think it's just a movie that will touch your heart uh, and won't let it go once it gets inside you. And you'll enjoy revisiting it over and over again because it almost always feels like you're rewatching it again for the first time. Uh, and it really just capture the purity of the essence, rather, of a sports movie. This idea of two underdogs, one for two, both for two different reasons, trying to achieve this thing and overcoming obstacles and barriers, uh, both real and, and imagined, uh, to accomplish them and uh, leaving a legacy uh, for people to follow afterwards. Um, yeah, and you know what can I tell you? It's just it's a film I love to pieces and. Um, I hate that a uh, majority of critics don't revere it in the way that it should be revered. Uh, but in the end, you know, that's how it goes because they love Red as the Lost Ark more or they think Reds is a more accomplished film. This is one of those little engines that could. Uh, and I love that it did because I don't know if I'd be the person I am today if I didn't have a movie like this uh, that still speaks to me uh, in the tough moments, in the trying moments, uh, and in the moments when I want to give up. You know, not to get too emotional, but it ha- it has always found its way into my heart, and the words and the dialogue have always given me a strength or a motivation in the the toughest moments. And that score is so incredible. So, I mean, that, that's that's what I would say there. So that is what we think of Chariots of Fire. Of course, we'd love to hear what you think. If this is your first time seeing this film or your 50th time, you could always visit us on our Facebook page, do a search for The Cinephiles, subscribe to the show at iTunes, YouTube, on Stitcher, on Spotify. Please leave a review on iTunes. Leave your comments on YouTube. If you want to buy or stream Chariots of Fire, you can do it on our website, cinephiles.net. If you want to support the show, go to patreon.com slash the cinephiles. We're doing more and more stuff there much more regularly than we've done before. If you want to follow The Cinephiles, you can do it on Twitter at Cine underscore Files, on Instagram at The Cinephiles Podcast. You can follow me on Twitter at SR Morris and on Instagram at SR Morris One. John, how about you? 
You can always follow me at the Roca says on Twitter and on Instagram. Uh, and please uh, come and subscribe to my YouTube channel, www.youtube.com slash John Roca. And uh, it's the Outlaw Nation channel. A lot of content coming. Uh, some more stuff coming down the pike very soon for people to enjoy and savor. Um, so, yeah, thank you. And I think that's it for this week. I want hope all of you stay safe and we'll see you next time on The Cinephiles. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.